welcome you to week one of a brand new series, Christmas series, that we are calling, never done a series like this before, this series is called The Women Who Gave Us Jesus. Yeah. Uh, So before we get to it, um, what's the series about? In, uh, In Matthew's gospel account, before Matthew tells us anything really about Jesus, the birth of Jesus, what we call the, the, the Christmas story, before Matthew gets to, to any of that, he gives us the genealogy of Jesus. <clears throat> and if you were here last week, you may have uh, um, heard me mention this, but a, a genealogy is basically the modern-day equivalent of a resume. Uh, in, in our culture, as I'm sure you're aware, a resume is basically a list of, of what you have accomplished as an individual. A resume is basically the story that you want to tell people about who you are as an individual that you give to prospective employers or universities or whatever it is uh, in the hope that they'll select you for who you are as an individual because that's really all we care about in our hyper-individualistic culture. For instance, when I sat for my interview with the Anne Arundel County Fire Department uh, and they interviewed me, they did not ask me who my dad or my mom was. They didn't ask me who my grandparents were or how my family you know, migrated to this area or what trades we were known for, anything like that. They didn't care about any of that. All they cared about was me as an individual. That seems so obvious and intuitive to us. We really can't imagine it any other way, but in the ancient world, it was nothing like that. <clears throat> in the ancient world, what mattered was not, just <laughs> your, was not just your contributions as an individual. It was about the family that you came from. And so your genealogy carried incredible weight. So I, I say this to say that when Matthew begins his gospel account, the gospel according to Matthew, when he begins his gospel account with the genealogy of Jesus, there's a really profound statement being made there. He's basically saying that you can't really rush to the Christmas story and understand it. You really can't rush into Jesus himself and fully understand him until you understand the family that he entered humanity through, his genealogy. And one of the things that that commentators have pointed out that makes the genealogy of Jesus so unique is that in a time and a place that really only valued men and the contributions of men and the accomplishments of men and all that, uh, the genealogy of Jesus in a very significant and noteworthy way includes the names of women, five women to be specific. And so what we're going to do for the next five weeks is hop into their lives and look at how their lives really set the stage and help us understand the story that we call Christmas. So I don't know what you're doing between now and Christmas Eve, but, you know, clear your calendar and join us on Sunday mornings as we hop in and take a look at the lives of the women who gave us Jesus. This morning, we're going to be looking at the first woman named in that genealogy, Her name is Tamar, uh, and her story is found in Genesis chapter 38. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say most people that came to church this morning are not super acquainted with the story of Tamar, so I'm going to give you, instead of reading the whole chapter, I'm going to basically give you uh, the 30,000-foot view. We'll we'll read it in uh, uh, Genesis 38. I'll read verses 11 to 19 and then 24 to 30. It says, Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. Let me just pause here. I made this note to the 9 a.m. I don't know how to pronounce that guy's name. I'm just not going to call him Sheila because that doesn't seem right to me. So this morning, his name is Shelah. Just do with that what you will. For he thought he might die too like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had finished mourning, 
he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite, went up to Timnah to the sheep shearers. Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's clothes, veiled her face, covered herself, and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the way to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had grown up, she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He went over to her and said, Come, let me sleep with you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me for sleeping with me? I will send you a young goat from my flock, he replied. (laughs) All right, class. But, But she said, Only if you leave something with me until you send it. What should I give you, he asked. She answered, Your signet ring, your cord, and the staff in your hand. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she got pregnant by him. She got up and left, then removed her veil and put her widow's clothes back on. Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has been acting like a prostitute, and now she's pregnant. Bring her out, Judah said. Let her be burned to death. As I didn't anticipate so many giggles in this one. Verse 25, as she was being brought out, she sent her father-in-law this message. I'm pregnant by the man to whom these items belong. And she added, examine them. Whose signet ring, cord, and staff are these? Judah recognized them and said, she is more in the right than I. Or some of your versions translate, she's more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her intimately again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twins in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. And the midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread around it, announcing, this one came out first. But then he pulled his hand back, and his brother came out. Then she said, you have broken out first. So he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread tied to his hand, came out and was named Zerah. This is God's word. And I know what you're thinking. How are we going to get from that to Christmas? All right. Give me like 30 minutes and we'll get there. Uh, as a side note, somebody came up to, at the end of the 9 a.m. and, and you know, it was emotional. And, and, um, and I'll just point out what they pointed out. Is it not refreshing that Jesus is not ashamed to tell you how much of a mess his family was? Does that not give incredible hope for people like us? Just a, a side note. And you're going to find that theme in all of these stories. It's not pretty, but Jesus is just a master at bringing beauty through all kinds of brokenness. So what I want to do with this story is break it into three pieces. We're going to look at uh, Tamar's situation and what it shows us about the need for justice, which is really fundamentally what her story is about. Then we're going to look at, at, at Judah's situation and what his story shows us about the need for what I'm going to call a personal, spiritual awakening. More on that in just a moment. And then lastly, before we're done here, we're going to look at how it all sets the stage for Jesus. But first and foremost, let's look at Tamar and the need for justice. So at the beginning of this story, I didn't read you the first 10 verses, but what we're told is that Judah finds himself a Canaanite wife, and he has three sons by her. Their names are Ur, Onan, and Shelah. So Tamar, uh, the heroine of this story, marries Ur, that's the oldest son of Judah, and we are told that Ur was so wicked that God killed him. We don't know any details uh, other than what we need to know, which is, and hang on to this because we're going to return to it later, 
Ur died as a result of his own wickedness. Super important. So he dies, uh, and then Tamar marries the second son of Judah. His name was Onan. Uh, If you want the details of his story, you can find those in the first 10 verses, which I'm sparing you from. But suffice to say, he was not any better than his older brother Ur, and so he dies, just like Ur died, once again for his own wickedness. And so then we pick up the story in verse 11, which is the first verse that I read to you, which tells us that Judah sent Tamar back to her father's house, which had a number of interesting cultural implications, where he told her to wait there until Judah's third son, Shelah, was old enough to get married and, you know, under the um, assumption that Judah was going to give Shelah to Tamar when he was old enough. Now, like a lot of things in the Old Testament, uh, we've got to take a little bit of time digging into the context to really appreciate the situation that Tamar was in in this story. So what this story makes perfectly clear on the front end is, is there's, there's two things about Tamar that when they came together, they essentially put her in the worst possible societal position that a woman could have been in in the ancient Near East. On the one hand, uh, she is widowed twice over. <clears throat> uh, that's a really big deal for Tamar because as the story makes plain, uh, she had to wear widow's garments. That was basically a, uh, an indicator a, a, that announced loudly to anybody who saw her, her station in life, and it made it highly unlikely that any other man would want to be with her, would want to choose her. Uh, again, really significant in Tamar's culture because women didn't have, uh, they had hardly any agency in the ancient Near East. She couldn't just go out and carve out a career path and a life of her own. And so um, being widowed twice over basically opened her up to all kinds of um, abuse and exploitation and marginalization. But on top of being widowed twice over in that culture, what was even worse is she was a childless widow. That was a really big deal because in Tamar's culture, children meant at least two things. On the one hand, children meant uh, economic prosperity, right? The more children that you had in an agrarian society meant the more uh, bodies there were to get involved in the family business or work out in the field and help you expand so that you could actually be profitable. Uh, But not only that, not only did children mean economic prosperity, they also, and this is probably the most important thing, a little bit of ankle itch here, sorry. Uh, Children meant um, future security. In a day and age when there really were no governmental programs, nothing like social security, the only way that that really ensured that you were taken care of when you were too old to take care of yourself was your children. And so Tamar, we learn uh, in just the first few verses of this story, is she is widowed twice over, uh, which meant it was highly unlikely that any other man would, would, would be interested in her, and she has no children to care for her as she ages. And so especially in an ancient Near Eastern society, Tamar is, um, she's in the worst, she's at the bottom end, the bottom rung of the social ladder. She, she is, uh, she's got a, a life of abuse, exploitation, and marginalization ahead of her. Now, because of that, uh, because of the vulnerability of people like Tamar, there's a very specific and very important law that was meant to look out for people like Tamar. It's called the Law of Leverett Marriage. And I just, let me make a note here. Uh, please don't let me lose you here. I understand that, you know, we, we can get a little bored getting bogged down on the details, but nothing about Tamar's story makes sense unless you understand the law of leveret marriage. That law comes from a Latin word, lever or levere, and it basic, the word is literally translated brother-in-law. And the way that the law operated was when you had someone like Tamar, when you had a situation like Tamar's, where you have this, this young woman whose husband died before he, you know, they were able to have children, then it became, according to the law of leveret marriage, it became the responsibility... I want to state this strongly. It became the legal responsibility for the father-in-law, the father of the husband who passed away. So in this case, Judah, 
to become basically the provider and the defender and the protector of Tamar, the widow. And so it was his responsibility, if he had any other sons, uh, to give them to Tamar in marriage. That's just why um, after Ur dies, Judah gave Tamar Onan. But I don't know if you caught this when we read it through on the front end. After Onan died, Judah's second son, Judah has this internal monologue that, again, is really important if you want to understand what this story is meant to teach us. In verse 11, Judah has this internal monologue where it becomes clear that even though the story tells us the reason Ur and Onan died was because of their own wickedness, Judah didn't see it that way. Judah actually, in his mind, began to blame Tamar for the death of his sons. And so he sent Tamar back to her father's house, which, which was sort of a way, commentaries I read said, that basically was a way of culturally shaming Tamar. And she's got to wear these widow's clothes that sort of consigns her to that life. And he told Tamar, all right, just wait there until my third son, Shelah, is old enough to marry you and I'll send him on over. But what the story makes plain is that Judah never planned to do that. <clears throat> so what Judah does on the front end of this story is he lies to Tamar and he consigns her to this dead-end life of celibate, childless widowhood, uh, forcing her to wait for a husband that would never arrive. That is, in that day and age, uh, this isn't just Judah kind of being a jerk. That is, um, that's breaking the law is what that is. <clears throat> so Tamar in this story understands eventually that uh, she's been lied to because she discovers that Shelah has, has come of age. He's old enough to be given to her in marriage, but Judah obviously decided not to do that. And so uh, Tamar takes matters into her own hands. She, she essentially disguises herself, uh, takes off her widow's clothes, puts on a veil so that she would look like, you know, culturally, the Bible says it, so I'm going to say it, a prostitute. There it is. Now we all have to deal with it. Uh, banking on the fact that when Judah saw her, he was just you know, going to desire to sleep with her. Essentially, Tamar's whole plan banks on the fact that Judah uh, is a very self-centered man who takes what he wants when he wants it. And so she takes off her widow's clothes, she puts on this veil to essentially disguise herself, and she waits where she knows Judah would be. And sure enough, Judah plays right into her hand and asks if he can sleep with her. And so Tamar says, well, what are you going to give me for sleeping with you? And he says, well, I'll send you a goat later on. And then Tamar says, I want something now which all things considered, that's pretty smart on Tamar's point because she, uh, part because she knew she couldn't bank on the character of a man like Judah. And so Judah agrees to give her three things, his signet ring, his cord, and his staff. That doesn't mean a whole lot to us modern people, but in that day and age, those three items were basically your identification. That was like leaving your wallet, your, your ID, and your credit cards with somebody. And the point is, what this story is meant to get across uh, is that Judah is incredibly foolish, he is completely controlled by his out-of-control desires. And, and more than that, and actually more ugly than that, Judah's deeply hypocritical. You know, because in this story, what he does is he consigns Tamar to this, again, this, this uh, dead-end life of celibate, childless widowhood. You're probably going to hear me say that a few, few times. Meanwhile, Judah has sex with whoever he wants to whenever he wants to. And so the point is, uh, Tamar's plan works. She conceives by Judah... Uh, and then, you know, they, they, they go their separate ways. The question is, what is Tamar actually after in this story? And the reason that I got into the law of levered marriage and all that kind of stuff is so that we would understood what Tamar's, actually motive, what Tamar's motive actually is in this story. At the end of the day, Tamar is after one thing. It boils down to one word, and that word is justice. 
you do not understand the story of Tamar until you understand that, that Tamar is essentially a woman who was forced to go to these great and kind of ridiculous lengths to secure justice for herself because Judah refused to act justly toward her. Uh, he had something that she needed in order for her to have a decent shot at life. It was his responsibility to give it to her, and yet he willingly withheld that from her. So just understand, by withholding his third son from Tamar, that was not Judah refusing to do her a favor. That was um, Judah refusing to act justly toward this woman. Now, like every other story in the Bible, the question that this immediately makes me ask is, okay, why did God put it in here? If all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, all of it, there's nothing in here by accident, all of it's necessary in order for us to live lives that are pleasing to God, the question is, first off, why is a story this kind of eye-popping and grabby, nestled in the Old Testament in Genesis 38, and then even more than that, why is this story deliberately included in the genealogy of Jesus Christ? And obviously, there's a lot of ways to answer that question, but I'll give you the most obvious answer to that question. This story is embedded in the Word of God to get the reader to ask him or herself, here it is, do we care about the Tamars of the world the way Judah did not? I did a little word study this week, and I found that if you survey just the Old Testament for the Hebrew word that gets translated to our English word widow, uh, it shows up over 50 times. That over and over and over again, God is, he, he, it's almost like he never stops talking about widows, his concern for widows, and the concern that his people better have for widows. And if you look at all those verses, you'll find that, that you know, widows are almost always included alongside three other groups of people. That's foreigners, that's the poor, and that's orphans. Sometimes those four groups of people, foreigners, the poor, orphans, and widows, are sometimes referred to as the holy quartet in the Old Testament. And basically what God does is he comes to the nation of Israel and he tells them, I'm going to judge you based on how well you care for them. And it raises the question, well, why those, those four groups of people? And the answer is pretty obvious. It's because those four groups of people were easy to take advantage of. They were easy to exploit. They were easy to marginalize. They were easy to, 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 to do exactly what Judah does in this story. Sweep them away, put them out of sight, put them out of mind because societally they had no power. They had no voice. They had no ability to stand up for themselves. And and so God comes to the nation of Israel over and over and over again and says, one of the hallmarks that you really belong to me and you understand the grace that I've demonstrated to you that you did not earn is going to be revealed in how well you care for them. And you go to to, to the New Testament and you'll find that James, the brother of Jesus Christ, writes in the book of James chapter one, he says that pure and undefiled religion boils down to just two things. On the one hand, pure and undefiled religion in the eyes of God, it boils down to keeping yourself unstained from the world. But the other side of that coin, James says, is pure and undefiled religion boils down to caring for widows and orphans in their affliction. And so I say all this to say that the, the, the question that this story is, is immediately meant to force us to deal with is do we care about the Tamars of the world like we should? Because according to God's word, when you look at this story, when you survey both Old and New Testament, if you claim to be a part of God's people, if you claim to be a, a person who's in the family of God, then, then what we have to deal with is that when God's people see people like Tamar, people who do not ha- don't, Tamar didn't even have a decent shot at life in and of her own power. When God's people see people in that situation, and it's within our power to help them, and we refuse to do so, that is a really big deal to God. 
That's not us refusing to do them a favor. That's us refusing to act justly toward them. There's, that's Tamar's story and the need for justice. <clears throat> Secondly, however, I want to look at Judah and what he shows us about the need for um, personal spiritual awakening. All right. So at the end of this story, uh, just to show you what kind of man Judah is, we're told that when he heard that Tamar was pregnant, actually the report that was delivered to him was she's been acting like a prostitute, i.e. Tamar has had sex outside of marriage. In other words, Tamar did the same thing that Judah did. Just hold on to that for a second. We're told that when he heard that Tamar had done that, he immediately orders her to be burned alive. Burned alive is what Judah calls for. And you say, well, who cares what Judah thinks? Again, in that day and age, Tamar was under the legal authority of Judah. So he could actually make that call. Now, I read a number of commentaries on this, and, and one thing they all agree on is that Judah is completely out of bounds here. That even as brutal as the, you know, the Old T Testament, ancient Near East you know, culture frequently appears to be to, to modern people with modern sensibilities like us, uh, burning somebody alive was reserved for only the most heinous crimes, and nothing that Tamar does in this story even comes close to warranting that kind of judgment. And so the first readers of this story would have read this, and the question is, layman's terms, what is Judah's deal? What's his problem? This, what this is showing, this isn't an act of justice. This is an act of hate. He doesn't just want this woman killed. He wants her to die in the most painful way possible. How do you explain that kind of hatred? And we already talked about this. It goes back to what we found in verse 11. Remember, in verse 11, we're told the reason that Judah did not give Tamar his third son, even though the law required him to, the reason he didn't do that is because he blamed Tamar for the death of his first two sons. Once again, really significant detail, because the story straightforwardly told us that the reason Ur and Onan died was because of their own wickedness. Now, what you're seeing in Judah is he can't accept that, right? And so it's not without justifying it. I don't think it's very difficult to understand a person like Judah. Judah's just one of those parents that refuses to see his children as anything other than perfect little angels. Somebody else has to be the problem. Right? Judah won't accept that his children, his sons, were the men that they were because if he faced that, well, then he would probably have to face the kind of man that he was and all of his failures as a father that created those, the wickedness in those two sons. And so what he does in this story is he takes the easy way out and he says, no, the problem has to be Tamar. And so he punishes this woman by sending her back to her father's house and consigning her to, once again, this dead-end life of celibate, childless widowhood. But here's the thing. In order to justify the way that he was treating Tamar, he needed to believe the worst about her. And now, we're not talking about Judah anymore. We're talking about all of us because the same thing rolling around in his heart is rolling around in all of ours. All right, all right follow me here while I use an admittedly extreme example. <clears throat> I... Um, don't quote me on this because I couldn't find the exact quote this week, but I'm about 99% sure that it was C.S. Lewis that originally observed this. I believe it was Lewis that said that on the front end of the Holocaust, the Holocaust, on the front end of the Holocaust, the Nazis killed the Jews because they hated them. By the end of the Holocaust, the Nazis hated the Jews because they killed them. Let me say that one more time. On the front end of the Holocaust, Nazis killed the Jews because they hated them. But by the end of the Holocaust, Nazis hated the Jews because they killed them. Do you understand what's going on there? The idea is that when we mistreat somebody, in order to justify our mistreatment of them, in order to justify our behavior toward them, 
we have to believe the worst about them. That when we mistreat somebody, in order to avoid us facing ourselves and admitting that we too are in the wrong, what, what, what needs to happen, this is one of the, the, the primary justification mechanisms of the human heart, is we have to uh, assign the worst possible motives to the people that we mistreat. We have to believe that there are these absolutely subhuman, beyond redemption kind of monsters. We basically have to dehumanize them in order to avoid facing ourselves. And I'm saying this to say that's exactly what you're seeing in Judah here. Right at the beginning of this story, when he sent her back to her father's house, telling her to wait for a son that he knew he never planned to send, that was, Judah knew this, that was an egregious act of injustice. And so what he needed to do was make Tamar the bad guy so that he didn't have to admit that he was the villain in this story. So all this time he's saying, no, Tamar's the problem. Tamar's the reason that I lost my first two sons. She's not going to be the reason that I lose my third. She's this monster. She's wicked. And so when he one day got news years later that she had been sleeping around, all of that hatred finally had a chance to rear its ugly head and almost without, it's not almost, without thinking, he was ready to have her murdered for doing the very same thing that he had no problem doing himself, which is sleeping around outside of marriage. Now, of course, at the end of the story, Judah's life essentially gets stopped and turned around on a dime because right before Tamar's getting ready to go into that fire, she basically says, all right, I'll accept my fate, but the person who owns these items is the father of this child and needs to come into this fire with me. And, And what you have there is kind of the ancient Near Eastern version of a mic drop. And so when the crowd that gathered that day saw that those items belonged to Judah, Judah had no response. And so he simply says, the words kind of fall out of his mouth. It's the most iconic part of this story. He says, Tamar is more righteous than I am. And so I, I've said all this to say, if the story of Tamar, if, if you look at, at her kind of character arc, if her story is showing us the need for justice, then what Judah is showing us is the need for personal spiritual awakening. And what Judah shows us about that is, first off, who needs a personal spiritual awakening, what one actually is, and then the timing of it. Here's what I mean. Let me just walk through that in these three different angles. First off, uh, he shows us the need for it. And and what I mean by that is, uh, zoom out from this story for a moment and just ask yourself, who is Judah in this story, all right? During the time that this story takes place, this is before there even was a nation of Israel, Judah is a part of you could call it the greatest spiritual family in the world. There is no family on the planet that is more personally acquainted with the God of the Bible than Judas. His father, his grandfather, his great-grandfather, Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham. You could not come from a better spiritual pedigree than Judah does in this story, and yet, look at how this story portrays him. The godless, pagan, Canaanite woman by his own admission, has behaved more righteously than he has. And one of the immediate things that's meant to communicate to us is that no matter who you are, no matter what family you were born into, no matter how closely related you are to other people who have their own personal vibrant relationship with God, our greatest need as individuals, and really our only hope, is that God would bring something into our life that interrupts the course of our life and painfully shows us who we are in order that we might understand how badly we need grace. There's no exception to this. You can look in Old and New Testament, all these men and women that have these incredible you know, relationships with God, and there's almost always recorded in Scripture, there's a moment when the truth needed to come home. 
You know, Paul talks about when he was studying the Ten Commandments as a Pharisee and he looked at the Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet. He said that commandment slew him. It killed him. It brought him to the end of himself where he realized his sin in a deeply, personally painful way. You read the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when Peter preached Jesus to the crowds gathered that day. Scripture says the people who heard him were pierced to the heart. Their sin came home. It became personal. I've shared this story with you before, but George Whitfield, who was this amazing preacher, who was instrumental in the Great Awakening, uh, he, he pastored a church, and he was bothered by the fact that people weren't coming to church, so he had this radically outside-of-the-box idea to go to people, even if they weren't going to come to him. And so he did something that nobody in their right mind would have done in his day. He went to the coal mines. And, and the legend says, there were eyewitness accounts of this day, that as these coal miners were coming up out of the, the coal mines at dusk, there was George Whitfield standing in his, you know, his, his vestments and his powdered wig standing at this podium getting ready to preach to these men. And they listened to him because nobody else would have even thought to preach the gospel to men like that. And eyewitnesses that day you know, who, who talked about the scene with all of these coal miners, their, their, their faces were covered in soot. They said one by one, all of these strange white lines started appearing on all the coal miners' faces. And after a while, people finally realized what was going on is, is these men were so moved by the love of God as poured out in the person of Jesus Christ that it was cutting gutters down their cheeks as their tears were washing their faces. And I say that to say that moment needs to happen in every single one of our lives. And I don't mean you need to be an emotional puddle because some of us, because of our temperament, out that aren't that way. You know, but whether the gutters appear on your cheeks or in your heart, every single one of us needs to have a moment where the truth comes home to us and we personally understand our need for a Savior. <clears throat> now, not only that, not only that, Judah's story shows us basically how to know if you've actually had a spiritual awakening. You know, everybody say, you know, wants to believe, yeah, sure, I've spiritually woken up. Well, Judah's story is this amazing litmus test to tell you and I whether or not we've ever had one. And according to this story, the number one way for you and I to be able to tell if you have ever had a spiritual awakening, you see this in Judah's life, is that you stop looking down on the people that you begin to despise, that you used to despise, rather. You stop looking down on the people you used to despise, and you start to see them as more moral and more, more righteous than you are. Because the turning point in Judah's life took place when he looked at this uh, pagan Canaanite woman that he used to hate so much he wanted her tortured and killed. He looked her dead in the eye and said, she's more righteous than I am. What's happening in that moment is Judah, who has got the greatest spiritual pedigree in the history of the world, is looking at this Canaanite woman and saying, not only do I not have the right to look down on you, but actually I could learn a lot from somebody like you. That right there is the evidence that you have had a spiritual awakening. And this isn't just unique to Judah. Again, you, you, know, you look at the, in, in the New Testament, look at Paul. We've talked about this before. But Paul, when he wrote to Timothy, in what would be one of the final letters that he wrote in his, his time on earth, that's when he referred to himself as the chief of sinners. And that's so amazing to me that it took Paul decades of walking with Jesus to get to the point where he could look at himself and say, you know what, I am absolutely the worst sinner that I know. And it was that realization, what he's showing us there is that the more spiritually awake he became, the, the, the greater clarity that he saw the areas of his own life that needed to change, and that's what kept him from ever being able to look down on anybody else. That's the hallmark that you both have had and are continuing to have a spiritual awakening in your life. And again, I think everybody, you know, you, you, you look at the turning point in Judah's life, and most people would say, sure, I want that. 
You know, I, I, I want to experience a turning point where I'm not the person I used to be and I don't mistreat people anymore and I'm spiritually awake and alive. But what Judah's story is showing us is that most often, there are very few, if any, exceptions to this, in fact, the way that God gets us there is by bringing something incredibly painful into our lives to wake us up, which just makes sense. I mean, if you, if you have somebody who's in a, in a deep sleep, physically speaking, it's going to take a lot to wake them up. Uh, and in a similar way, if it's true what the Bible's saying about all of us, that we are all deeply asleep spiritually, then the only hope that we have and really the greatest thing that God could do for any of us is bring something into our life that violently and potentially painfully wakes us up in a spiritual sense. That's exactly what happens with Judah here. Be, you know, make, make no mistake, when, when Judah called for Tamar's public execution, he called for a public execution. So when she's getting ready to be burned at the stake, it wasn't like just Judah and Tamar were there that day. That was a, everybody from the village came out to see what was going on. And so what happens at the end, when Tamar says, fine, but whoever owns these items needs to hop in here with me, what happened was Tamar's execution, public execution, became Judah's public humiliation. And you, you look at the story of Judah's father, Jacob. In his turning point, his wrestling match with God, the same thing's happening with Judah. Make, make just... Make sure you understand this. Judah, spiritually speaking, for the rest of his life would go on to walk with a limp as a result of what happened to him this day, but that's what it took to wake him up and to bring him back, to bring him home, really. So, so Judah's story shows us not only who needs spiritual awakening, all of us, <clears throat> it shows us what it actually is and what, you know, how you can know you have one, but lastly, and maybe this is most important for some of us, Judah's story also shows us uh, the timing the time that a spiritual awakening takes. If, if you just teleport into the story of, of, um, of Judah and Tamar, if you just read that story as kind of a one-off in Genesis 38, you'll miss the fact that the story of Judah and Tamar is actually embedded in the larger story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. This is a, a great reason why, you know, it's important to read kind of passages at a time. That's, that's great. There's a time for that. But it's also it's, it's really helpful if you just read large chunks of Scripture and you kind of mow through the Bible end to end, or you'll miss the, the, the largest and maybe the most important point of this teaching. <clears throat> Joseph's story, if you're not familiar with it, uh, he was favored by his... First off, Joseph was one of Judah's brothers. And Joseph was hated by all of his brothers because it was well known that their father Jacob loved Joseph the most. And so they all kind of conspired together, and their original plan was to have, jo they just wanted to murder him. Let's just have him killed. We're done fooling with this guy. We're done hearing about how great he is from dad. Let's just take him out in the wilderness and kill him and be done with it. Uh, but one of the brothers came up with the idea, which is actually a lot more sinister. He said, no, no, let's not, let's not have Joseph murdered. Let's sell him into slavery so we can make a buck off of him, and then we'll tell everybody he was murdered so nobody even bothers to look for him. This is the best of both worlds. We get rid of him, and we make a profit. You know, the brother that was responsible for that plan was Judah. That takes place the chapter before this story. So what, what the Bible's trying to get us to see, if you really zoom out, is what kind of absolute monster of a man Judah was. He sold his brother into slavery, lies to his father. He watches his father basically die from grief because of that loss. In this story, he's unjustly treating, he's, I mean, he's, he's pushing around a widow, a defenseless widow in the ancient Near East. He's getting ready to have her murdered. But what commentators will say, every commentary I read on this passage says that if you read forward to the end of Judah's character arc in the book of Genesis, what is clear is that what Tamar did to him in this story produced a transformation in his life that legitimately did transform his life. 
Because a few chapters later, you read Genesis chapter 44, we have this scene where Joseph now, he's an older man, he's climbed the ranks in the Egyptian government, he's number two, he's the prime minister, and he's standing before all of his brothers who, who don't recognize him because it's been so many years since they've seen him, and Joseph is testing his brothers to see if they still had all the same cruelty and hatred and selfishness in their hearts that they did when they sold him into slavery. And so Joseph falsely accuses his brothers of stealing, and he says, all right, well, to pay for your crime, you're going to have to give me Benjamin. He stays with me and becomes my personal slave for the rest of his life. That's so incredibly important because Benjamin was the only biological full brother of Joseph. Benjamin was basically the son that took the place of Joseph in Jacob's heart. And so it would have split Jacob in half to lose not just Joseph, but then Benjamin. And so in Genesis 44, you can read this today, what happens when Joseph says, I'm keeping Benjamin, Judah's the one that speaks up. And he delivers what is the, it winds up being the longest discourse by any character in the whole book of Genesis. It's this beautiful, powerful, moving speech that actually moves Joseph to tears where, where Judah essentially says, listen, I can't see my father go through the grief that this would put him through. So you let, you let Benjamin, you let the rest of my brothers go, I'll be your slave, my life for his. And it's such a significant moment in Judah's life because that was his opportunity to do the same thing that he'd been doing all his life. All Judah's life, he'd been looking at people and essentially saying, your life for mine. At that moment in his life, Judah finally learned to say, no more of that, my life for yours. The point is, the transformation that took place in Judah's life here in Genesis 38, it was real. It was lasting. He was never the same again. And I say all this to say, when you look at Judah's story start to finish, the, the formula, God's formula for breaking Judah down and rebuilding him into the man that he was calling him to be, the, the, really a vehicle through whom the salvation of God could enter into and advance into the world, God's formula for getting Judah to where he, he needed to be, you know what it was? It was a lot of pain plus a lot of time. And unfortunately... That formula is the same for everybody that God decides to work in and through. And so here's where this kind of gets personal. Here's where this might hit some of us where we live today. Here's what this means. If you read the story of Judah and you can relate to it in a more than intellectual and theoretical way, meaning if you're listening to this this morning and you know what it's like to be led through some truly humiliating circumstances, if God has, has... has seen fit in his wisdom and in his sovereignty to lead you through circumstances like he did with Judah that have humbled you and brought you painfully to the end of yourself. And if you look at your life and you say, man, if I'm being honest, I've been in a lot of pain for a lot of time, then I'm, I'm, part of me is sorry to say this, and please don't take me out in the parking lot and beat me, but I would say I'm excited for you. Because where you are right now is where God has had every single man and woman that he has decided to work powerfully in and through as he advances his kingdom in this world. Lastly, before we're done today, I said I wanted to look at how all of this sets the stage for Jesus. And here's where we get to the story of Christmas. It's going to happen. When you look at this story at first glance, it seems like Tamar really owes her life to Judah. and I've heard this, this story taught that way, in a way that kind of makes Judah the hero. And while I can understand how you get there, I think that actually misses the point. And let's be clear, while it is true in one sense that Tamar does owe her life to Judah because she's spared when Judah says, you know, she's more righteous than I am, 
I think what's, what's far more true, and this is really the point of the text in a deeper way, is that Judah owes his life to Tamar. Because had Tamar not painfully interrupted the course of Judah's life, we can be sure Judah was going to be consumed by the hatred in his own heart, just like Tamar was going to be consumed by that fire. Prior to this story, like we just talked about, Judah was the kind of man that had no problem faking his brother's death and selling him into slavery. In this, pro- in this story, he's got no problem denying justice to a widow and then calling for her public excruciating torture and murder, right? The point is, we have no reason to believe that Judah's going to turn his life around on his own unless Tamar has the courage to confront him like she does in this story. And so in a, in, a, in a far deeper and truer sense, Judah is the one that owes his life to Tamar because she had the courage to show him who he was, to have an intervention for him so that he might see the person that he was becoming in the hopes that he might change. And when you understand Tamar's story that way, it becomes crystal clear why a woman like this is included, included in the genealogy of Jesus, because what Tamar does for Judah in this story is precisely what Jesus has come to do for every single one of us. Let me call the worship team up, and, I, and I'll leave you with this. What Jesus does at the end of his life when he hangs on the cross is essentially provide you and I with the intervention that we need, that we might see ourselves as we really are, and change. When Jesus hangs on the cross for us, what he's doing is he's telling us two things about ourselves that if we can accept and we can admit and it comes home in a human heart, we'll be changed forever. Jesus is showing us that on the one hand, we are more sinful than we would dare believe, so sinful that he had to die for us, yet at the same time, we are more loved than we could possibly imagine. So loved, so valued in the eyes of God that the Son of God was glad to die for us. And when those two truths come together and come home, they will change a human heart in a way that nothing else can. That's how Jesus and Tamar are similar. But I think it's the ways that they're different that are actually even more important for us to see. At the end of Tamar's story, what we see is that the moment of her execution, she was spared because she was declared righteous. But you follow Jesus' story to the end of his life And we never see that happen for Jesus. What we see at the end of Jesus' life is that he's on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating. His sweat has become like drops of blood, and he's asking God the Father, "Is, is there any other way to save them except for this? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And the hours that ensue, Jesus is completely denied justice. He's mocked, he's beaten, he's spit on, he's handed over by the people that he came to save, he's abandoned by the men that he invested his life in, he's calling out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And heaven makes no reply. And then Jesus dies. And what you're seeing in that moment is that Jesus, in a cosmic way, in an ultimate way, he was thrown into the fire that Tamar was spared from. Jesus entered into the ultimate fire of God's wrath so that instead of just showing us who we are, He could transform who we are. He could rid us from the power of sin. He could rid us from the power of death. He could rid us from everything that was separating us from God. He could end our sin without also ending us so that we could be reborn. We could be remade with new identities in the eyes of God. And now the hope of the gospel is that every single person who will give their life to Jesus, just as as Judah declared Tamar righteous, now Jesus declares you and I righteous, not because of anything that we've done, but because of what he's done for us. And make no mistake, there is a huge difference between being declared forgiven 
and being declared righteous. I just leave you with this idea. Forgiveness means that you're free to go. Righteousness means you're free to come home. Righteousness means you are loved, you are accepted, you are welcomed in the eyes of the Father, and you will never lose that because it does not depend on you. It depends on what Jesus Christ has done, what he has secured for you. And when that reality comes home to a human heart, it'll do two things in us, guaranteed. Number one, when the love of God comes home to us, it will create in us a a fervent passion to fight for and uphold the cause of the Tamars in this world. We'll know that our whole lives are purely because of grace that we didn't earn, and so we'll, we'll do everything that we can to extend that grace to others. That's the first thing. But the second thing is just like Judah, the love of God will give us the security to face ourselves no matter what we see all of our lives so that we can be remade, we can be reborn, we can be rebuilt over and over again so that we can be the men and women that God's called us to be, the vehicles of Jesus' salvation in a world that desperately needs it. That's the story of Tamar, one of the women who gave us Jesus. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you that you're not shy about how, how much of a mess your family was. Thank you for including stories like this in the Bible that remind us that no matter, no matter how much of a mess we make of our own lives, no matter how much of a mess we make of other people's lives, no matter how much other people have made a mess of our lives, we're not without hope. You have been specializing in turning around just seemingly irredeemable situations for your glory. Jesus, would you please make your grace so real to us that it would give us a heart for the Tamars of this world and would give us the security, so secure in your love, that we'd be willing to face ourselves and own what we need to own and admit what we need to admit and come home and change into the people that you've called us to be. By grace through faith, in the name of Jesus, all God's people said.